In science, convictions have no rights of citizenship, as one says with good reason. Only when they decide to descend to the modesty of hypothesis, of a provisional experimental point of view, of a regulative fiction, they may be granted admission and even a certain value in the realm of knowledge, though always with the restriction that they remain under police supervision, under the police of mistrust. But does this not mean, if you consider it more precisely, that a conviction may obtain admission to science only when it ceases to be a conviction? Would it not be the first step in the discipline of the scientific spirit that one would not permit oneself any more convictions? Probably this is so, only we still have to ask. To make it possible for this discipline to begin, must there not be some prior conviction, even one that is so commanding and unconditional that it sacrifices all other convictions to itself? We see that science also rests on a faith. There simply is no science without presuppositions. The question whether truth is needed must not only have been affirmed in advance, but affirmed to such a degree that the principle, the faith, the conviction finds expression. Nothing is needed more than truth, and in relation to it, everything else has only second-rate value. Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Walter Kaufman. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, mutual aid, collaboration, and non-domination in your everyday life. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson. Before I get to this week's episode, a couple of notes. First, about the recording. I have a cold. Pretty sure it's not COVID, but it is affecting my voice. And I'm recording in a different location where I am hoping we won't have any leaf blowers or trucks, but there is definitely birdsong. I'm going to leave the birdsong in, even if I can take it out, because birdsong is just nice. The other thing is I wanted to give you a couple of announcements about the show. First of all, as I believe I mentioned in last week's episode, I'm going to change up the format a bit in the new year and I'm start going to and I'm going to start having some anarchist texts that I post on the website. I hope to also make give you recordings of those texts in the feed so you can listen to them instead of reading them. And then I'm going to discuss those texts and their writers as I would have um, in one of my classes. It'll be like a little seminar on anarchism, except you can just listen to it and it'll be one reading and one analysis a month. The other thing is I have got the interview train rolling now. And next week's episode, I'm so excited about this, is an interview with Leonard Williams, a political scientist and also crossword puzzle maker who has a new book out this holiday season, Black Blocks, White Squares. There, it's a little pun for you. It's a crossword book with an anarchist theme. My wife and I are doing it together. It's very collaborative. We love it. And I'm also learning lots about the history of the anarchist movement. Highly recommend, and uh, we'll talk way more about it next week with Professor Williams on the show. This week's episode, though, as you may have noticed from the opening Nietzsche quote, is about science. I have noticed lately this enormous trust in science, which seems to have accelerated during the pandemic. Obviously, this isn't a new thing. It was pretty huge in the 19th century, as you can see from Nietzsche attacking it. If you want to say something true, just say that it's scientific. That's it. And then people have to agree with you because it's science. Let me give you an example. So in the 19th century, there's this philosopher, Herbert Spencer, and he says it is simply science. You cannot have any state intervention into the economy. So far, so good. But there's also a 19th century philosopher named Karl Marx, and he says, according to science, 
the state has to take complete control over the economy. Uh-oh, we've got a problem here. When people say trust the science, they mean you have to do what science says. We don't think of Spencer or Marx as scientists now, but they were both considered scientists at that time. Spencer says science demands one thing, Marx says science demands another thing. This isn't a problem for anarchism or its philosophical cousin pragmatism. You can just say, oh, well, they're using the same word science to mean different things and let's just not worry about it and decide which one you think is right based on your own thoughts. Yes, that's great. But that will not help us if we want science to be real. Pragmatism would say, oh, there's lots of different things called science and none of them are really real. And there is no central body that can tell you what is scientific and what isn't scientific. But then we can't seed our response to the pandemic to a scientific body. So we want science to be real. But I'm going to argue that it isn't. Not real or, quote, objective in the sense that science is real as a slogan means. I'm going to argue that truth, which is, remember, what we're looking for with science. Truth is, according to the pragmatist philosopher Richard Rorty, what your contemporaries will let you get away with saying. Which is very, very unsatisfying for someone who wants clear, direct, and let's say authoritative, I might say from an anarchist perspective, authoritarian answers from science. And what these scientists would do, besides just say that Marx and Spencer are both unscientific, is just say that one of them is wrong. Science can fight it out and it can find the right answer. This is where Nietzsche comes in and says, but to have this process, you have to believe that there is a right answer ahead of time and that you can find it. And that is faith, not science. And so if you're having an argument that cannot be solved by any appeal to first principles or any authority and everyone just has to do the best they can and make their argument, well, that's anarchism. And if you say science is real, you know that science isn't anarchism. But the name of this episode is, of course, Anarchism is Science. Just like I did with the Jesus episodes, I'm going to start with the other side, although not give it an entire episode. Let's call this part one. The case for science is real. And although there are certainly some scientists who make this case, you normally find it more with philosophers than scientists. Most of the people who do science are aware of the anarchic nature of science, although sometimes they want to hide that from the public because they don't want the numbskulls getting involved. But there aren't really a lot of scientists defending science is real when they really come down to write their thoughts. What you get is philosophers, and these philosophers are de defending something called rationality or reason. The first thing you've got to understand is just to defend rationality and then scientific rationality, you've got to have something called reality. The name for this philosophical position is realism. It says there are real things, like, say, a tree. And then we can know things about those real things. So if a tree falls in the forest, we know it makes a sound, even if no one observes it. Because that's just a fact, an irreducible reality about trees. So this is called realism. That's science. It's a real truth about real things. And actually... This fact about trees is, I think, impossible to prove scientifically because science proceeds from observations. So how can you prove? How can you prove that when the tree falls in the forest, it makes a sound scientifically? How are you going to prove it? You need to set up an experiment. Well, if there's no one around to hear it and there's no recording equipment, then you can't test this hypothesis, can you? 
You see, this is an untestable hypothesis. So the pragmatist philosopher says, this is just an act of faith, believing that when the tree falls in the forest and there's no one around to hear it, it still makes what science calls a sound. But the science is real camp, the rationalists, the realists, they don't want this to be an object of faith. So they've got this thing called reality, which it is actually pretty hard to prove it exists. You assume it exists, but it's hard to actually prove it, as scientists and philosophers have found for millennia. But the argument goes that science has gotten pretty good at finding this thing called reality. And I'm going to draw this argument from two 20th century uh, philosophers, Bertrand Russell and Karl Popper, and I'm going to give this case three facets. So what do you need if you want your science to be real? One, you need human objectivity. You need scientists, people who have been trained in science and who I would say believe, but they would say have taught themselves how to recognize reality as opposed to superstition or faith. We need a trained scientific mind. The second thing we need is a scientific method. Freed of its human desires, this Zen-like mind can follow the processes laid down by Francis Bacon or later Karl Popper or whoever and find the truth. Finally, we need progress. The proof is in the pudding. Or the original version of that saying is, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Did you get your mind right and follow the recipe correctly? Then the pudding will be delicious. And the taste of the pudding in science is progress. Did we advance knowledge? Then we scienced correctly. Part one for science is real, the scientific mind. Here's a quote from Bertrand Russell. The true philosophic contemplation finds its satisfaction in every enlargement of the not-self, in everything that magnifies the objects contemplated and thereby the subject contemplating. Everything in contemplation that is personal or private, everything that depends upon habit, self-interest, or desire, distorts the object and hence impairs the union which the intellect seeks. The free intellect will see as God might see, without a here and now, without hopes and fears, without the trammels of customary beliefs and traditional prejudices, calmly, dispassionately, in the sole and exclusive desire of knowledge, knowledge as impersonal, as purely contemplative, as it is possible for man to attain. Hence also the free intellect will value more the abstract and universal knowledge into which the accidents of private history do not enter, than the knowledge brought by the senses, and dependent, as such knowledge must be, upon an exclusive and personal point of view and a body whose sense organs distort as much as they reveal. Now in the previous paragraph, he spends a decent amount of time attacking pragmatism and the pragmatic method. I don't think he mentions William James by name, but he, let's just say he mentions William James by name otherwhere in his work. He hates James. He hates all the anarchist slash pragmatist philosophers. He's explaining what philosophy does. It finds its satisfaction in, quote, every enlargement of the non-self. By non-self, he just means reality, the world, nature, the universe, everything that's not you. So what do you have to get rid of? Habit, self-interest, or desire. He doesn't even trust his sense organs. So the goal of science and philosophy working together is in some ways to overcome human perception. Philosophers are here to help the scientists know they should disappear as human beings. Reality is real outside of humanity, so if you want to find it, you have to see the way God would see. Eliminate your humanity. Become objective. No desire. Which really, like I mentioned, I think this is basically a version of Buddhism. 
Remember this idea of no desire and no habits, because we'll come back to that when we see the pragmatist or anarchist version of science. We've got our Zen-like scientist. Now it's time for part two, the scientific method. For that, I'm going to come from Karl Popper. He was a few decades younger than Russell, and he took up Russell's project of uniting science and philosophy and throwing out unscientific philosophers like William James and Nietzsche. Popper is, in my opinion, much more sophisticated than Russell, and I'm not going to be able to deal with the full complexity of his argument. Maybe I can find a Popperian philosopher to come on the show in future months to discuss this. I feel good about my ultimate reading of him as science is real and it's on top of the hierarchy and he agrees with Russell more or less. What we want to take away is the fundamental, the, the main idea of Popper, and his most important contribution is the scientific method. If you were taught the scientific method uh, or scientific process in school, you probably weren't taught the original version, the Francis Bacon version from the 17th century but a modified version of that that came from Popper, and Popper emphasized falsification. So when we talk about the theory of gravity rather than the law of gravity, even though gravity seems pretty obviously true, well, we can't prove that gravity is true. We can just keep testing to see if it works, and it always does. So gravity is real, not because we can prove it is real, but because we cannot prove that it is not real. It is not not true. And Popper says that's how you find out truth, or at least as close as you can. You make a prediction, and then you try and disprove it. You try and falsify it. And if it survives, it stays alive. Popper actually says Karl Marx was very scientific. He says that Marx came up with a theory, a law of history, or a theory of history, which said capitalism would be destroyed, and it would be destroyed pretty soon. It's 2021. We still have capitalism. Marx was wrong. But he wasn't unscientific. He proposed a theory. We tested it with history. These, uh, <laughs> these people, you may have heard of them, uh, Stalin, Lenin, Trotsky, they tested it. They didn't kill capitalism. It was wrong. So Marx was very scientific. He just was wrong. But Popper hates 20th century Marxists. He basically invented the scientific method because he found the Marxists infuriating. Once Einstein comes along, people were willing to admit that Newton got things wrong because they were able to falsify Newton. That's the example Popper uses. But <laughs> Marx got falsified over and over and over again, and people still believed him. They were spending years, decades explaining how Marx was right, even though every single one of his predictions came wrong. Scientists stopped trying to use pre-Darwinian evolutionary theory, once Darwin came along, because Darwin had falsified it. They stopped trying to use pre-Einsteinian theory, at least where Einstein applies, because Einstein had falsified Newton. But the Marxists are just saying over and over again, no, Marx is really true. Uh, no matter what the data says, we just, we know it's true. And gosh, if you know any of the Marxists out there, they're still doing it in 2021. I personally find it infuriating. Infuriating. Sorry. So Marx was being scientific, but he was disproved. But the people who still believe in Marx after he was disproved are not being scientific. They're being fundamentalist. Here's Popper. The Marxist theory of history, in spite of the serious efforts of some of its founders and followers, ultimately adopted the soothsaying practice. Soothsaying meaning the processes where you, you know, look at the entrails of an animal and make a prediction. And then when the prediction is wrong, you say, oh... That's okay, you just misunderstood my explanation of the entrails, but the soothsaying was still right. Back to Popper. 
In some of its earlier formulations, for example, in Marx's analysis of the character of the, quote, coming social revolution, their predictions were testable, and in fact falsified. Yet instead of accepting the refutations, the followers of Marx reinterpreted both the theory and the evidence in order to make them agree. In this way, they rescued the theory from refutation, but they did so at the price of adopting a device which made it irrefutable. By this stratagem, they destroyed its much-advertised claim to scientific status. Having said this, Popper then starts talking about the poetry of Homer, and also astrology. These are all, as you can see, non-scientific. But poetry knows it's not science, so it's okay. Astrology and Marxism, however, just keep making predictions, keep being wrong, and then keep explaining why they are actually right. Irrefutable, says Popper, but also unscientific. Pseudoscientific, because they are pretending to be science. So if you are not following the scientific method of making predictions and then dropping the beliefs that created those predictions, if those beliefs are proven wrong, you're not doing science, you're doing pseudoscience. So that was part two. Part one, a Zen-like scientific mind freed from desire and habit. Part two, the scientific method of falsification or falsifiability. So that's how to do science, how to use the scientific method, but why would you want to use the scientific method? And the answer is, again, what we've been talking about. There's something real outside of humanity. This is where the hierarchy comes in. The poetry of Homer is obviously not as valuable as science. Science is real, and poetry is real too, but not as real. Poetry, belief, faith, politics, these things are real, but below science. That's why you have to trust the science. The scientists have abstracted themselves into these objective knowers of pure truths which they're confirming all the time with their constant experiments, and thus they exist on a higher plane than you and I. Popper and Russell both criticize Plato, but as near as I can tell, they fundamentally agree with him. There are certain people who are better at knowing things, things which are purer and truer than us stupid people who like literature, art, and, you know, life, us numbskulls. So it's just our job to trust the science. And how do they prove that we should trust them? There is a claim here. They are making progress. That's how you can tell we actually are finding out the truth of reality. So, part three, scientific progress. Here's Popper. The history of science, like the history of all human ideas, is a history of irresponsible dreams, of obstinacy, and of error. But science is one of the very few human activities, perhaps the only one, in which errors are systematically criticized and fairly often in time corrected. This is why we can say that, in science, we often learn from our mistakes, and why we can speak clearly and sensibly about making progress there. Okay, this is what I meant when I said that Popper was unusually sophisticated. More than certain other philosophers of science, he doesn't seem to believe in an inhuman godlike scientist. In that sense, I think he understands humanity and science a lot better than Russell. He says that irresponsible dreams and obstinacy are part of the scientific process. But he also says that we've got to eliminate them. We are making progress. We are getting closer to that thing which is outside of humanity. As the product of humanity, science is tainted by humanity. But if we work really hard and get really objective and do falsification, we can strip human error out of science and find the truth. If you want to, you can use the metaphor of refining. You're never going to have something that's 100% reality, but science lets you move from 98% reality to 99% reality. It's like making something more and more pure, like gold, like the alchemists do. And don't worry, we'll talk about alchemy soon. And Popper says science is special. He says it's, quote, perhaps the only one 
of all the activities that really do this, that really falsify and make progress. I also want to point out before I move on that this scientific progress doesn't tell us that what we have learned is useful or valuable. It just says that it's true. One more quote from Popper before I move on. Our aim as scientists is objective truth, more truth, more interesting truth, more intelligible truth. We cannot reasonably aim at certainty. Once we realize that human knowledge is fallible, we realize also that we can never be completely certain that we have not made a mistake. So again, he acknowledges that nothing is perfect, but he also still believes that there is objective truth outside of humanity, the God's eye view that science can move us towards. Science will never give us perfect knowledge. It will never give us complete certainty. It will never give us objective truth, but objective truth does exist and science will move us closer to that objective truth. Some truths are simply truer than other truths. And science is the only tool we have to find what's truer than something else. All right, that's the end of the science is real part. Science is real if we remove as much as the humanity from the individual practitioners of science as possible then we come together to practice falsification and eliminate the ideas that are tainted by human experience or more tainted by human experience. Eventually we will remove so much error and make enough progress that we've got something that is more real than what we had before. We will know the truth, never all the truth, never 100% truth, but definitely more truth, truer truth, objective truth, reality. Science is real. Three cheers for science. Now let's all take a deep breath and run the roller coaster of science as anarchism. There's actually a philosopher of science who uses the word anarchism and quotes Kropotkin. His name is Paul Feyerabend. I'm not even sure how to pronounce his name. I find this guy infuriating. He later claimed in his career that anarchism was a joke and it wasn't a good way to talk about science. And he just is annoying. But he's very important in this topic. So I'm going to give you one quote from him. Non-scientific procedures cannot be pushed aside by argument. To say, quote, the procedure you used is non-scientific, therefore we cannot trust your results and cannot give you money for research, assumes that, quote, science is successful and that it is successful because it uses uniform procedures. The first part of the assertion, science is always successful, is not true. <laughs> if by science we mean things done by scientists, there are lots of failures also. Scientists are like architects who build buildings of different sizes and different shapes and who can be judged only after the event, i.e. only after they have finished their structure. It may stand up. It may fall down. Nobody knows. But if scientific achievements can be judged only after the event and there is no abstract way of ensuring success beforehand, then there exists no special way of weighing scientific promises either. Scientists are no better off than anybody else in these matters. They only know more details. This means that the public can participate in a discussion without disturbing existing roads to success. There are no such roads. In cases where the scientist's work affects the public, it should even participate. First, because it is a concerned party. Many scientific decisions affect public life. Secondly, because such participation is the best scientific education the public can get. A full democratization of science, which includes the protection of minorities, such as scientists, is not in conflict with science. It is in conflict with a philosophy, often called, quote, rationalism, that uses a frozen image of science to terrorize people unfamiliar with its practice. So you can see in this quote that science is real isn't a claim about knowledge. It's a claim about politics. Scientists know better, so you have to be quiet. Science is real is about hierarchy. But the science is real scientists, just like the Jesus authorizes hierarchy priests, aren't really making a claim about science. 
They just want the numbskulls to back out of the whole debate and leave science to the professionals. And leaving anything to the professionals is not just un-anarchist, it is undemocratic. And now I am going to do a takedown of the three ideas that I drew from Russell and Popper and show that they are ultimately a fundamentalist dogmatism, not a belief in this living, human, beautiful process called scientist. Remember, those three ideas are first, scientists should clear their minds of their interests and desires. Second, that falsifiability can separate out science from pseudoscience. And finally, that science makes progress towards objective or God's eye truth. And I'm going to quote three main people to attack each of these arguments, and all of them are scientists, not philosophers. Well, all of them, I would say, are also philosophers, but they all are scientists first. Because I think Feyerabend is right. Science is real, is a philosophical and political claim, and is rarely made by scientists themselves. So, of course, to take on Russell, I have to bring on his uh, archenemy, William James, the pragmatist extraordinaire, who more or less invented the field of psychology as a science. Here's James from his essay, The Will to Believe. There is included in human nature an ingrained naturalism and materialism of mind, which can only admit facts that are actually tangible. Of this sort of mind, the entity called science is the idol. Well, okay, I already have something to say. Look at this move. An idol is something that you invest religious belief in, but you shouldn't. Russell and Popper believe in this, quote, science. They claim to hate religion, but they have a religion. And they claim that their god won't let them worship any other gods, and all other gods are false idols. Oh, James is so delightful. Science is real is a fundamentalist claim. It has the same level of sophistication as the Bible is real. That's what that opening quote from Nietzsche is about. Science is real is about piety. It's about proper belief. It's about worship. There is no God but science, and Bertrand Russell is his prophet. Now back to James. Fondness for the word scientist is one of the notes by which you may know its votaries, and its short way of killing any opinion that it disbelieves in is to call it unscientific. But the slightest reflection on the real conditions will suffice to show how barbaric such notions are. They show such a lack of scientific imagination that it is hard to see how one who is actively advancing any part of science can make a mistake so crude. <laughs> oh, man. Barbaric votaries. This is fundamentalism, and it is a crude, crummy fundamentalism. Science is right. Unscientific things are wrong. End of story. James can't believe that any scientist could believe this especially when they claim to be against religion. Oh, there's a little bird song. Enjoy. Here he goes on about this religion. He's using the phrase doctrine because it is about a set of religious beliefs. We have no right, this doctrine tells us, to dream dreams or suppose anything about the unseen part of the universe, merely because to do so may be for what we are pleased to call our highest interests. We must always wait for sensible evidence for our beliefs, and where such evidence is inaccessible, we must frame no hypotheses whatever. Of course, this is a safe enough position in abstracto. If a thinker had no stake in the unknown, no vital needs, to live or languish according to what the unseen world contained, a philosophic neutrality and refusal to believe either one way or the other would be his wisest cue. But unfortunately, neutrality is not only inwardly difficult. It is also outwardly unrealizable. This is because, as the psychologists tell us, belief and doubt are living attitudes and involve conduct on our part. Our only way, for example, of doubting or refusing to believe that a certain thing is, is continuing to act as if it were not. Yes, 
Yes. Thank you, James. This is the thing that Russell hates so much. To do science, you're supposed to clear your mind of belief. You're supposed to say, I am a science robot, beep, beep, looking for truth. I see the world as God does. But James point out that humans become scientists. Why? Because they want to, because they fall in love with it, because they believe in it. Their habits are formed by it. Their desire is for truth and knowledge. The way you do science isn't to pretend that you don't have beliefs. It's to follow your beliefs. If you believe in poetry, you will write poetry. If you believe in science, you will do science. And here's James. Take science itself. Without an imperious inner demand on our part for ideal logical and mathematical harmonies, we should never have attained to proving that such harmonies be hidden between all the chinks and interstices of the crude natural world. Hardly a law has been established in science, hardly a fact ascertained which was not first sought after, often with sweat and blood, to gratify an inner need. Whence such needs come from, we do not know. We find them in us, and biological psychology so far only classes them with Darwin's accidental variations. To gratify an inner need, that's why we do science. That is the exact opposite of why Russell says we should do science and how we can do science. Why did Galileo or Einstein do what they did? Because they wanted to, because they had passion, because they had faith, because they were compelled to do science. They were crazy. They could have gotten themselves killed ostracized. In the case of Galileo, he got almost killed and definitely ostracized. It's also a miserable process. Science can be miserable. You spend decades on a project. No one does that if they don't think it's going to work. But they don't know before they start whether it works or not. But no one says, I mean, ask a scientist if you know any scientists. I'm pretty sure that this experiment is going to fail. Um, in fact, I'm almost completely certain. But uh, as an objective scientist, I just... I just wander around finding things out like a robot. That's not true. They believe. They believe it's going to work. They hope. They are compelled. Scientists are numbskulls like the rest of us, hoping against hope that they can learn something. A truly objective being that sees the world as God would wouldn't even bother with science. It takes a crazy person, but a non-fundamentalist person, a believer to do science. You don't strip yourself of your beliefs to do science. You turn your beliefs into the scientific process. Which brings us to the scientific method. Remember, the key to the scientific method for Popper is falsifiability. It's how we make sure something is really science. Honestly, William James just defined falsifiability a few paragraphs ago. Popper didn't invent it. But he's often given credit for it rather than James because I think the people who are interested in it are interested in this, you know, science is real idea. But obviously James knew it because he was a scientist. Now I'm going to falsify falsifiability. Sure, it, it sounds good, it works, but can it really eliminate pseudoscience? Popper talks about eliminating certain left-wing theories like Marxism, but the traditional thing that the scientific method is supposed to eliminate are folk beliefs like astrology or alchemy. Alchemy is uh, chemistry mixed with magic. And then it claims really dumb stuff like uh, elements can be turned into other elements. Okay, so we know now that elements can be turned into other elements and the alchemists are right about that. But still, alchemy isn't science and we know it's pseudoscience and bad and wrong. So I'm going to give you some examples of alchemy and see if we can falsify them and prove them to be unscientific. Here's one from the 17th century, which is the same century as Francis Bacon, remember the inventor of the scientific method, and Isaac Newton. This particular alchemist is trying to figure out how to turn something into gold, which is the ultimate alchemist's goal. But the rule or axiom for the transformation of bodies is of two kinds. The first regards the body as an aggregate or combination of simple natures. Thus, in gold are united the following circumstances. 
It is yellow, heavy, of a certain weight, malleable and ductile to a certain extent. It is not volatile, loses part of its substance by fire, melts in a particular manner, is separated and dissolved by particular methods, and so of the other natures observable in gold. An axiom, therefore, of this kind deduces the subject from the forms of simple natures. For he who has acquired the forms and methods of superinducing yellowness, weight, ductility, stability, deliquescent solution, and the like, and their degrees and modes, will consider and contrive how to unite them in any body so as to transform it into gold. Wow. Okay, so that is some pseudoscience. We've just got to superinduce yellowness into any substance, and then we will know how to make gold. So can we use the scientific method to falsify this ridiculousness? I'm not even going to try because this quote is actually from the book Novum Organum written by Francis Bacon, the inventor of the scientific method. In fact, this is part of the invention of the scientific method. The scientific method was literally created by someone who was using alchemy. He was just trying to make alchemy more scientific. Popper tells us the scientific method can eliminate pseudoscience, but what if the scientific method grew out of pseudoscience? There just isn't a clear line between science and pseudoscience. This goes back to Feyerabend's claim. You can only tell later if something is pseudoscience. How do we know Bacon isn't a pseudoscientist? Because it worked. But that's anarchism. Try it out. See what happens. You can't tell anyone they're doing it wrong from some objective point of view. Okay, so maybe I cheated a bit with Bacon. Let's use uh, a, a much sillier and more ridiculous version of pseudoscience from the 17th century. Ready? Dissolve volatile green lion. I'm sorry. I can't read this. It's so dumb. Dissolve volatile green lion in the central salt of Venus and distill. This spirit is the green lion, the blood of the green lion, Venus, the Babylonian dragon, <laughs> the Babylonian dragon killing all things with its venom, but conquered by the soothing of Diana's doves, the bond of Mercury. Neptune with his trident leads the philosophers into the garden of the wise. Neptune, therefore, is the watery mineral menstruum and the trident the ferment of water similar to the caduceus of Mercury with which Mercury is fermented, namely the two dry doves with dry martial Venus. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just so embarrassing that this, this writer thought that he was doing science. The Babylonian dragon, the blood of the green lion, two dry doves with dry martial Venus. At least Bacon was using these quasi-scientific terms. This guy is talking about Roman gods. He is talking about Neptune's trident. Except this is Isaac Newton, inventor of calculus and the dominant force in physics for more than 200 years. I got this quote from an amazing website called The Chemistry of Isaac Newton, and they've spelled chemistry in an old-fashioned alchemist way. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes. Newton left boxes and boxes of this stuff, but it's traditionally been ignored because, you know, it wasn't science. But if you actually study Newton, you see that it's this stuff that led him to his big discoveries. Was he an objective scientist? No. He was a religious believer who wrote more about angels and God and the Old Testament and alchemy, way more than he did about gravity and calculus. Did he practice science and eliminate pseudoscience? Absolutely not. He didn't distinguish between science and pseudoscience. Newton was a pseudoscientist. He was an alchemist. 
he's talking about the green lion and Venus and Neptune. But if you want to send a ship into space, it works. Popper doesn't get to tell Newton that Newton didn't know how to do science. There is no method that would falsify Newton for being pseudoscience. Whatever works, works. But Popper might say, but yeah, okay, but Newton works because he works. So there is still progress. We can still eat this delicious pudding that is science, and we can eliminate anything that doesn't give us progress. Now, one more scientist. We had William James, Francis Bacon, and Isaac Newton. This one is going to be Oliver Sacks, who was a neurologist. If you haven't seen the movie Awakenings with Robin Williams playing Oliver Sacks, I recommend it. It's kind of cheesy and Hollywoodized, but Robin Williams is wonderful in it, and it gives you this... I think it gives you a good sense of Oliver Sacks, his combination of insight and compassion. All right, now tell us about progress in the sciences, Dr. Sacks. This is from his essay, Scotoma, Forgetting and Neglect in Science. Gunter Stent, considering prematurity in scientific discovery in 1972, wrote, A discovery is premature if its implications cannot be connected by a series of simple logical steps to canonical or generally accepted knowledge. He discussed this in relation to the classic case of Gregor Mendel, whose work on plant genetics was so far ahead of its time, as well as the lesser known but fascinating case of Oswald Avery, who discovered DNA in 1944 a discovery totally overlooked because no one could yet appreciate its importance. Had Stint been a geneticist rather than a molecular biologist, he might have recalled the story of the pioneer geneticist Barbara McClintock, who in the 1940s developed a theory of so-called jumping genes, which was almost unintelligible to her contemporaries. 30 years later, when the atmosphere and biology had become more hospitable to such notions, McClintock's insights were belatedly recognized as a fundamental contribution to genetics. Had Stent been a geologist, he might have given another famous, or infamous, example of prematurity, Alfred Wegener's theory of continental drift, proposed in 1915, forgotten or derided for many years, but then rediscovered 40 years later with the rise in plate tectonics theory. Had Stent been a mathematician, he might even have cited, as an astonishing example of prematurity, Archimedes' invention of calculus 2,000 years before Newton's and Leibniz's. And had he been an astronomer, he might have spoken not merely of a forgetting, but of a most momentous regression in the history of astronomy. Aristarchus, in the 3rd century BC, clearly established a heliocentric picture of the solar system that was well understood and accepted by the Greeks. It was further amplified by Archimedes, Hipparchus, and Eratosthenes. Yet Ptolemy, 500 centuries later, turned it, this on its head and proposed a geocentric theory of almost Babylonian complexity. The Ptolemaic darkness, the Scotoma, lasted 1400 years until a heliocentric theory was reestablished by Copernicus. Oh, wow. Sachs concludes by saying this happens over and over again, quote, a forgetting of insights that seem clearly established. That's not progress. It's not even stasis. It's moving backwards. Not only does science not move forward, it moves backwards all the time. I think that does it. I'm ready to rest my case. Sorry, science is real, folks. That makes sense retroactively only. You can look back and see that Newton is a scientist, but only because Newtonian mechanics worked. Otherwise, we'd call him a pseudoscientist. Scientists can't be objective, otherwise they wouldn't bother to believe in hypotheses enough to test them. It's lack of objectivity that creates experiments. And no one agrees on what the scientific method actually is. Science is real, sure, but it's real just like poetry or politics and can often be inspired by poetry and driven by politics. It's a really amazing way that people explain and transform the world around them. 
it's also mostly bullshit. The only difference is that poets and politicians know that poetry and politics are mostly bullshit. But the scientists, or at least their philosophical PR guys, do not know that about science. I'm going to close this out with Richard Rorty, a late 20th century philosopher. I mentioned him in the intro. He was a great admirer of William James. Rorty attributes these ideas to the physicist and philosopher Thomas Kuhn. Kuhn, however, says that Rorty misunderstood him, so I'm, I'm leaving Kuhn out of this episode. He's too complicated. We'll let Rorty give his version of Kuhn. I hope it is clear that I do not want to assign science a lower position on this pecking order. What I do want to urge is that we stop using terms like real and objective to construct such an order. I want to substitute questions about the utility of disciplines for questions about their status. It seems to me as silly to try to establish a hierarchy among disciplines or cultural activities as to establish one among the tools in a toolbox or among the flowers in a garden. For my anti-hierarchical purposes, I find it helpful to say with Kuhn that, quote, whether or not individual practitioners are aware of it, they are trained to and rewarded for solving intricate puzzles, be they instrumental, theoretical, logical, or mathematical, at the interface between their phenomenal world and their community's beliefs about it, close quote. I would interpret this remark of Kuhn's as applying to all practitioners of all disciplines, physics as much as jurisprudence, philosophy as much as medicine, psychology as much as architecture. As I read him, Kuhn gave us a way of seeing the history of physics, of philosophy, of the novel, and of parliamentary government in the same terms. Human beings trying to improve on their ancestors' solutions to old problems in such a way as to solve some new, recently arisen problems as well. Kuhn suggested that in all these areas we could drop the notion of, quote, getting closer to the way things really are, close quote, or more fully grasping the essence of, quote, or finding out how it really should be done. Close quote. For all these, we can substitute the notion of capitalizing on past successes while at the same time coping with present problems. This, according to Rorty, is how science works. It's also the idea behind this podcast, which I wouldn't call scientific, but it is about using old ideas to solve new problems. Science isn't real or objective. It isn't at the top of any hierarchy. It's just another way of trying to solve our problems, using what we've learned from the past, working mostly together, sometimes competitively, with no one in charge, or at least no one able to state that they truly have the right to be in charge because they have a monopoly on knowledge or truth or power. That is anarchism. Science is real, sure, as real as poetry or architecture. It doesn't get to win just by virtue of who it is any more than kings get to rule anymore by virtue of who they are. We're all on the same plane. And that is anarchism. Okay, thank you so much for listening. Remember, I'd love your questions at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. And if you can, please support this podcast any way you can. Go to everydayanarchism.com to sign up for the newsletter Anarchist Hot Takes. Go to that same website to donate to help keep the show alive. Tell a friend. Leave an Apple podcast review. Any and all of these things help. Thank you so much. Remember, next week we are talking to Leonard Williams about his book of anarchist crossword puzzles. And the theme music, which you are about to hear, is by David Hill.